Please join me in prayer as we begin. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. One year when I was maybe seven or eight years old, I was homeschooled and my dad gave me the dreaded thing, a homeschool assignment over Thanksgiving break. We were going to my great-grandmother Rains' house for Thanksgiving, which was a common occurrence. We were on her farm outside of Warren, Arkansas, and my assignment was to interview her and to get her piece of our family history. Even though I was young, what stuck with me to this day is how much of what she talked about were the same things that my grandfather and my father had been sure to teach me. Her husband had died, leaving her with seven kids under the age of 15, I believe was the oldest, and she ran the farm and raised them all on her own. What I didn't realize then, at that time, was that I was being handed the testimony of a covenant-keeping God who showed himself faithful to a family, who in turn passed down the faith from generation to generation. And by the way, that faithfulness continues on. My grandparents weren't able to be here last week because they live down in Louisiana. They're moving up here. But they were the church that um, my grandfather attends now was celebrating 68 years of gospel preaching ministry. Uh, God is faithful. Everything about who I am as a person, for better or for worse, has been shaped by those who have gone before me. There is a family resemblance that goes beyond just large triangular noses and receding hairlines, which do run in the family. My father made a point to instill in me what it meant to be a reigns, to carry our heritage from those who had gone before. Now, why, why do I say all that? Because our passage tonight is the family history of Adam. It begins, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And it traces the lineage from Adam to Noah. This is a, this is a sweeping overview, and it actually covers the longest period of history of any section of Genesis. But it's really sparse on details, and it really only highlights a couple of men in these first ten generations. But in what we do see here, we find some family resemblances. In our passage tonight, we see that sons tend to be like their fathers. And we also learn that when sin gets involved, things spiral out of control quickly. By the time we hit chapter 6, the darkness of sin has covered earth as pervasively as darkness had covered the formless creation in the beginning. And yet, through it all, there is a glimmer of hope shining in the midst of darkness. Because as John Calvin wrote on this passage, there was always a number, though small, who worshipped God. And this number was wonderfully preserved by celestial guardianship, lest the name of God should be entirely obliterated and the seed of the church should fail. God would keep his promise to preserve a faithful 
remnant until the seed of the woman would come and bring redemption. Our outline is in the normal place in the bulletin. I've got three divisions for us tonight. Fathers and sons falling into darkness and favor of God. And kids, the words for you to listen to are in the normal place. But before we go any further, I also need to give you a disclaimer. Some of the most difficult things in the Bible are found in these 40 verses. There are thousands of pages, possibly tens or hundreds of thousands of pages written in attempts to unravel the perplexing aspects of what all is here. And I read a small percentage of all of those pages. So if you're looking for a perfect understanding of every mysterious detail of these verses, I am going to disappoint you tonight. I'm not going to be able to answer all of your questions. So if we don't touch on your favorite piece of this puzzle, then let's go to coffee or lunch this week. Let's talk about it. But my task tonight, which if you were here last week, you heard, first and foremost is to point you to the Lord Jesus. And that is my hope. All right. So there's your disclaimer. Let's begin in chapter 5. In the first 20 verses here in chapter 5, you'll notice a family resemblance. Moses repeats what he had said back in the first two chapters of Genesis, that God made man in his own image. If you remember, Pastor Chris told us that that image means that human beings are created rational, reflective, relational, and responsible creatures. Moses also here repeats that mankind was blessed by God. He made us male and female. He gave the first two people the blessing command to be fruitful and multiply. But there's one addition here in chapter 5 that wasn't mentioned in the earlier narrative. That God named his image-bearing creation. He named him man. So all of that, that description that we have here is meant to show us that God was Adam's father. Adam was the son of God in his creation. He was made with that family resemblance. And even though he had sinned, that image was not completely eradicated. Mankind were still male and female. They were still able to procreate. And they still had the possibility of fellowship with God. However, something had changed through Adam's sin. Notice that the text says in verse 3 that Adam, the one made in God's image, fathered a son in his own likeness and image. This is the first thing that we see that Adam passes down. Not the upright nature that the Lord created him with, but a corrupted one due to his own sin. Our confession says this in chapter 6. The guilt of Adam's sin was imputed, and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all of Adam and Eve's posterity, descending from them by original, original generation. Matthew Henry explains it this way. Adam was made in the image of God, but when fallen, he fathered a son in his own image, sinful and defiled, frail, wretched, and mortal like himself. Not only a man like himself, consisting of body and soul, but a sinner like himself. And the evidence of this likeness of Adam is scattered throughout this chapter. Kids, I'm going to give you permission to talk in church for a minute, okay? You ready? 
When Mr. Warren was reading the Old Testament passage, what did you hear over and over again? And he died. You got it. And he died. Moses wants us to feel the pain of that repeated blow. So-and-so lived, had kids, and he died. As long as these lives may have been, they came to an end. Death was still the inevitable enemy awaiting Adam's sons because they had the family resemblance of a corrupted, sinful nature. Adam also passed along to his son a name. Like the creator who named him, Adam here names his son. He's demonstrating again that in some ways he's still like the God in whose image he was made. Back in chapter 4, we read that Eve named Seth, but here it has Adam naming the boy. So I guess on this one at least, they agreed. And this is the first time that we're shown Adam naming something or someone since he named Eve in response to the promise of the seed. So we see here in him naming Seth, we should look at Adam as acting in faith. He's confirming his confidence in God's promise And he's looking for its fulfillment through the appointed son taking Abel's place. And it is through this genealogy, the one through Seth, that the promise will be carried forward. Not through Cain's genealogy that we saw in the last chapter a couple of weeks ago. So Adam passes along a corrupted likeness, a name. But he also hands down to his descendants the knowledge of God. We were told in chapter 4 that in Seth's time, people began calling on the name of the Lord. And as we read about his descendants here in chapter 5, we see that they knew the Lord. And they were familiar with both the curse and the promise given to Adam. At least through this line, the one going down to Noah, the knowledge of God was handed down from generation to generation. And you have to wonder... How many of them heard these things directly from Adam himself? If you line up the ages and you do the math and you make a spreadsheet like I did, Adam would have been around to see all of them all the way down to Lamech. As the patriarch of the family, all of his descendants would have been able to come and to hear about the garden and the serpent and the judgment and the promise of God. So, What are we to make of those extremely long ages? This is one of those questions I'm not going to be able to completely resolve for you. But I think there are a couple of things here that are both clear and important. First, this is not mythological language. This is historical language. These are real historical people. And the ages that Moses wrote down for us are meant to be taken seriously. And second... When you compare this, this list, to the generations in chapter 4, those generations coming from Cain, you'll notice that only in Seth's line are those ages listed. And I think there's a theological reason that they're missing from Cain's line. Because life apart from the Lord is not true life at all. It's almost as if Moses is saying, it doesn't matter how long those descendants of Cain were breathing because they never truly lived a single day. And when we read of Seth's line and we read these 
long ages. Our attention should be drawn to the blessing of long life granted to these men who trusted the Lord and who faithfully continued the line of godly offspring. There's not enough here for us to tell whether lives this long were out of the ordinary before the flood. But regardless, what we do have here is a shining example of Proverbs 3, verses 1 and 2. These sons did not forget their father's teaching. Their hearts kept their father's commandments, and so length of days and years of life and peace were added to them. And yet, as good and full and long as these lives were, every one of them came to an end. Sin's effects are real. They've been passed along to Adam's race, even in the so-called good line. In the words of Matthew Henry, man's life is but dying by degrees. But as we read through the list, just as that repetition of lived, fathered, died, lulls us to sleep, we're jarred awake by what we read about a friend of God in verses 21 through 24. Let me read them for you again. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Here with Enoch, we see echoes of Eden. First, notice the the text doesn't follow the pattern by saying, uh, giving that final formula that begins, Enoch lived. Now, what does it say in verse 22? He walked with God. This is the first time that Moses describes someone as walking since chapter 3, verse 8, where the Lord God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. Enoch had a relationship with God that was as close as could possibly be outside of the garden. I love how one commentary put it. The phrase suggests that Enoch and God got along. Enoch lived in close fellowship with God, leading a life of devotion and piety. And this is true life, to walk with God. And Enoch here is also foreshadowing Noah. He's the only other person, Noah is, in the entire Old Testament, described as walking with God. But this is not just the goal for some Two super spiritual men from long, long ago. You remember what the prophet Micah says? That God requires of all men to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That is the calling for all of us. But what a contrast we have here from Cain's descendants. Among Cain's descendants in chapter 4, Lamech was the seventh generation, seven being the number of completion or perfection, and he boasted of taking the wickedness of those who had gone before him and increasing it exponentially. But in contrast, Enoch is here the seventh in Seth's line, and he is set forth as a wonderful example of a righteous life. So these two genealogies of Cain and Seth, they're set side by side for us. We are to see them as a continuation of 
the seed of the serpent through Cain and the seed of the woman through Seth. But there's another hugely significant change in the description of Enoch. We get to the point where we expect to read, and he died, but instead we find, and he was not, for God took him. And it's so interesting here, the language parallels what God did with Adam back in chapter 2, where the Lord God took the man and placed him in paradise on earth. And here, God takes the son of Adam from earth into paradise. My dad related a wonderful way he heard a preacher explain this. He said it like this, Enoch was out with God on their daily walk, and when evening came, God said, Enoch, we're closer to my house than yours. Why don't you just come home with me? And that neat? And what we learn when we look at Enoch, we see that while wonderful blessing is given in living a long life, there is an even greater blessing to live face to face with the Lord in his heavenly temple. Enoch's years on earth were less than half of most of his relatives that we read about. But he received a greater blessing in never experiencing death. One commentator said, Perhaps long life is not the greatest blessing one can experience. To be elevated into God's presence is better. And Enoch and the prophet Elijah are the only two men in history that we know of, to have their time on earth end in this way. So we're not going to look here and say, oh, we expect that kind of experience. But we can look to Enoch as an example and an encouragement to live holy lives before the face of God in hope of everlasting life with him. So in this chapter of fathers and sons, we've seen family resemblance, we've seen a friend of God, And then with these last two generations, we see a father's hope. Just as Lamech was the only one in Cain's line whose words were recorded, here in Seth's line, this other Lamech speaks. But he speaks quite differently. Verses 28 through 32 say this. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work. And from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Lamech's words show us a couple of things. First, we see what Lamech knew. I hope something sounded familiar to you in that speech. In the Hebrew text, he speaks in order of pain, the ground, and then the curse. He uses the exact same terms in reverse order from Genesis 3.17, which says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Lamech knew the curse. In fact, adding up all the years in this genealogy at the time he spoke these words, he would have seen Adam and Seth and Enosh die. He would have seen his grandfather Enoch taken away. So Lamech not only knew the words of the curse, but he experienced it as he saw his forefathers return to the dust. But he also must have known the promise because he named his son in hope. He named Noah 
saying, I know there's one coming who will deliver us. Maybe this is the one. Lamech hoped for deliverance. And he spoke prophetically of what he hoped his son would do. He named him Noah, which sounds like niham, a word meaning comfort or relief. Lamech's hope was that Noah would bring relief in the midst of work and painful toil. As we close this list of fathers and sons, we do so in hope. Before we move further, I want to look at a couple of applications for us. First, empirical evidence suggests that I don't need to spend much time at Christ Church Bentonville talking about being fruitful and multiplying. Uh, You guys are taking the blessing command of God and running with it. We are an overjoyed church filled with covenant children. But let me ask, more than just having them, parents, and especially fathers, are you passing down the teaching from one generation to the next? Are your children hearing the word of our faithful God? Are you calling them to take hold of his promises to them and walk with him as their God? Even if you don't have a faithful Christian heritage, You have been adopted into God's family and you can be the beginning of a heritage of faith for those who have your last name. Kids, are you listening? Are you listening to your parents' instruction and taking it to heart? Learn from the examples in this list that the greatest blessing comes from hearing and obeying God. And even if you don't have children... You have a part to play. We're going to be baptizing another child tonight. And you members of Christ Church are going to make a vow that you do at every covenant baptism. You will tell us that you will assist the parents in raising their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You promise to God himself that you will pray for these children, that you'll assist parents in teaching them, And that you will live lives as godly examples and as examples of repentance before them. All of us in God's church play a part in passing the generation, passing the faith from one generation to the next. And second application, again, in the form of a question. Are you seeking to walk with the Lord? Do you believe that true life is found in fellowship and communion with him? And so do you speak to him in prayer? Do you seek to hear from him in his word and participate in him in the sacraments? Don't settle for an easy and comfortable life devoid of true blessing. True blessing is being a friend of God and ultimately eternal life with him. The next section of our text takes a dramatic turn. We're going from fathers and sons, continuing in hope in the fallen world, and in Genesis 6, 1 through 7, we see mankind falling further and further into darkness. The context historically in which the godly line of Seth lived was one where sin continued until finally God's patience was exhausted. Chapter 6 begins... When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive 
and they took, their wives, took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not contend with man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. So God's command to Adam and Eve was beginning to be fulfilled, at least in part. There was fruitful multiplication, and mankind began covering the earth. But there's a problem. The sons of God crossed a line in taking whomever they chose from the daughters of men in marriage. And here's our next difficulty that I'm not going to resolve for you tonight. Who are these mysterious parties, the sons of God and the daughters of men? What exactly is being done that causes the Lord to respond in the way that he does? Let me tell you, these questions have led to several different conclusions by wise and orthodox exegetes for millennia, each with its own strengths in favor and weaknesses against it. One major reason for this is that the sons of God haven't been mentioned in Genesis, and that term will not be used again by Moses in any of his writings. They make this one appearance, they anger the Lord, and then they're gone. If you want to know more about those different views, you can talk to me after the service, or we can set up a time to talk through them this week. But what can we say about what's going on here? What's clear from the text is that the sons of God are presumptuously sinning by following their own desires when they marry the daughters of men. And the reason that I say this is clear is first... We have another echo of Eden in this narrative. Think back with me to chapter 3, where in verse 6 we're told that the woman saw that the fruit was good and she took it. And here we're told the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, the Hebrew word is good, and they took them. Moses wants us to see that this is the same type of action as the first sin. In the words of Derek Kidner, the point of this cryptic passage, whichever way we take it, is that a new stage has been reached in the progress of evil, with God's bounds overstepped in yet another realm. And second, what is clear from the text is that the Lord's re response is severe judgment on man. The sins of the sons of God with the daughters of man mean that human beings are guilty and deserve punishment. The result of this sin is that the Lord is going to put a stop to it, whatever it takes. And verse 3 presents some more difficulty for us as well, but I think the best understanding of it is that the Lord has been patient, maybe even wrestling with sinful man through his faithful servants, declaring the truth of his moral law, and he has determined that the time has come to stop contending with man. Matthew Henry writes of verse 3, The Spirit of God strove with men by sending Enoch, Noah, and perhaps others to preach to them, by waiting to be gracious, notwithstanding their rebellions, and by exciting alarm and convictions in their consciences. But the Lord declared that His Spirit should not thus strive with men always. He would leave them to be hardened in sin and ripened for destruction. But even here, God sets a delay of 120 years before his judgment will be executed. But enough has become enough. Because as he says, his image bearers, 
have become mere flesh. Their sin has gone so far as to make them nearly unrecognizable as the reflections of the Lord they were made to be. And they're more like the animals who are flesh without spirits. Derek Kinder again sums up these three verses when he says, more important than the detail of this episode is its indication that man is, man is beyond self-help. And we cannot go any further without stopping to hear this warning ourselves. God is mercifully patient with sinners, but his patience will not last forever. The purpose of his kindness is to lead us to repentance. If you have not fled to Jesus to find forgiveness for your sins, do not presume that God's kindness will continue on forever. He will never run out of patience with his children's sins because he has already judged them at the cross of Christ. But for all who are outside of Christ, he will repay all their sins. Your only hope of salvation is to place your trust in Jesus Christ before it is too late. And in our text, even though the patience of God is exhausted, we continue to see the proliferation of sin. Verse 4 tells us that the Nephilim were on the earth then and later. The only other mention of them is in Numbers, where the spies in Canaan see men whose physical stature and military strength terrify them. And then we're told here that the illicit marriage of sons of God and daughters of men produced the mighty men of renown. This whole verse is a summary of what sinful man respects. Prowess and power and prominence. From man's perspective, this was the pinnacle of humanity. But it's a far cry from the Lord's assessment. Don't miss the irony that while Scripture listed out the whole lineage from Adam to Noah, and we're going to spend four chapters on this one man, Noah, not a single one of these so-called men of renown even gets his name mentioned here. And the next section tells us why. Verse 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention and the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The last time Moses wrote about God seeing was way back in chapter 1. After creating man in his image, the Lord looked on the earth and saw nothing but good. Very good. But now, he looks down and sees nothing but evil everywhere. One commentary says that Moses goes out of his way to emphasize the depth of human evil at this time. Note the expressions, every inclination, only evil, all the time. In the words of our larger catechism, question and answer 25, this is a demonstration of our fallen estate, which leaves all sinful people indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to evil continually. This is total depravity running headlong into utter depravity. It speaks of sin that was considered and planned and formed and arranged and then carried out. And so everything that man thought and loved and did was worthy of condemnation. Have I made my point? 
But I think it's vital that we appreciate the extent of sinfulness in man so that we can understand the extent of God's response. The same condition of pervasive sinfulness is true of every single person apart from Christ today. But in Noah's day, God's intervening grace had been removed and sin was allowed to run rampant. So let me give you a word of comfort here. As you ask, how on earth can this be comforting? As bad as things may be now, they are not as bad as Genesis 6. At that time, the faithful remnant of God's people would be reduced to one family. In our time, Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell cannot stand against our advance. So when you look around and you see evil everywhere, cheer up. It could always be worse. And it has been. So the Lord's response to this proliferation of sin is a proclamation of judgment. And Moses first tells us of God's internal response. Where we run into another one of our difficulties. He says, the Lord is grieved to his heart and is sorry that he made man. Let's be very careful here. We cannot explain this passage in such a way that contradicts what the rest of the scriptures say about God's foreknowledge or about his impassibility or about his immutability. The language we have here is what is called anthropopathism. In the words of one church father, it doesn't mean that God is affected by emotion or subject to any passion. Instead, the divine word to impart to us more fully to impart more fully to us a true understanding of the scriptures, speaks as if in terms of human emotions. This is an ironic reversal of Lamech's hope. In the original language, the word for regret is actually related to the word for relief that Lamech was looking for. Where Lamech was looking for salvation, man's sin had brought nothing but misery and judgment. And this internal response that the Lord reveals should shape how we see him. Because the world likes to characterize the church as worshiping a God who loves to punish. They they see him as a cosmic killjoy just waiting for someone to slip up so he can vent some anger. But when God sees sin running rampant in his world, his response is not, yes, time for judgment. No, he is grieved to his heart. Because the very same God that is angry with the wicked every day, the very same God who will by no means clear the guilty, is also the God who does not delight in the death of the wicked, and the God who is abounding in mercy and steadfast love. We must never speak of God's judgment in such a way that ignores his sorrow over sin. And I want to offer three uses we can make of this internal response of God towards sin. First, through it, let us learn to put our sin to death. If sin is the thing that grieves God to his heart, how can we cherish it in ours? If the Lord is sorrowful over sin, then let us learn to be as well. Second, let us see the love of God that condescends to us, even in the way he talks to us, to speak to us. 
He loves us so much that, in the words of John Calvin, he lisps to us as a nurse to a child so that we may understand him. That's why he uses this anthropopathic language, so that we can understand him. And third, some of you have wayward children or loved ones that have wandered from the faith into sin, and it grieves you to your heart. So here in Genesis 6-6, may you find encouragement. The Lord knows your pain. And through prayer, carry your sorrow to him. And he will comfort you as a loving father. But God does not only have this internal response. Verse 7 tells us his external response in judgment. Man's utter depravity demands God's utter wrath. And due to man's place in this world as the pinnacle of creation, his sin has corrupted it all. The whole world has to be wiped clean. Man's sin has thrown the world into spiritual chaos and spiritual darkness has covered the face of it. So it's almost as if here that the Lord says it would be better to make the physical reality match the spiritual and return the earth to a formless void like it was before he shaped and filled it. His plan is nothing less than a decreation that he plans to carry out through the waters of judgment in the flood. It's heavy and it's sad and it's hopeless. And then we run into the happiest word in the Bible. But, when we reach the bottom of the fall into darkness, somehow, we still in verse 8 see a glimmer of hope in the favor of God. This is the Ephesians 2-4 moment of our passage. Just as Ephesians 2 tells us that we were dead in our sins, without hope in the world, but God. Genesis 6-8 tells us that God would blot out life from the face of the earth. But Noah found favor. We could even translate this as Noah found grace. This is the first instance of the word grace in the scriptures. And this is one last Hebrew word play in our passage. The word is chen. It's basically Noah spelled backwards. And here we see Noah wasn't singled out for being perfect, but he was the object of God's electing gracious love. Because it is impossible to please God without faith, and Noah pleases God. And it's vital that we get the order right here. And I know that this bleeds into Chris's text for next week, but he did it to, my, to me in my sermon a couple weeks back, so it's fair payback. Look at verse 9. We're told, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. But we're not told that until after we hear that Noah was shown favor. Noah's righteous life was not the basis of his acceptance before God. No fallen son of Adam can earn eternal life by his own righteousness. But here we see that while God was determined to demonstrate his righteousness through judgment, he was just as determined to keep his promise and to show grace. 
I'll let Derek Kidner have the last word on this verse. He writes, The simple brevity of verse 8 is extremely telling after the sweeping terms of verse 7. Together, the two verses show God's characteristic way with evil. To meet it not with half measures, but with the simultaneous extremes of judgment and salvation. That's the only way God meets sin is judgment or salvation. Now, I told you in the introduction that my task was to help you see Christ. The Bible declares that in our hearts, we are no better than the sinful men in Genesis 6 that demanded God's judgment. We deserve the same. It is only in Christ that we can receive that other extreme of salvation by grace. But all through the book of the generations of Adam... The Lord Jesus has been there. Did you see him? As we close, let me point him out in hopes that your faith in him and your love for him may be strengthened. Jesus is the true and better Adam, our mediator of the covenant of grace, who obeyed where Adam sinned, who succeeded where Adam failed. While the first Adam disobeyed and brought death to many, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus, through his one act of righteousness, has brought justification and eternal life to all who believe in him. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, who remakes us into his own image by his Spirit. Jesus is the true and better Seth. Cain was wicked and Abel died, so God appointed Seth as a replacement, a substitute, to carry forward the promise. We were wicked and dead in sin. And God appointed Jesus Christ as our substitute to die in our place. Seth had children and then he died and his story ended. But after the Lord Jesus died, he rose on the third day for our salvation. And by believing in him, we have the right to be called children of God. Jesus is the true and better Enoch. He walked with God all his days. And after completing all his work on our behalf, he was taken into heaven. Not merely as the friend of God, but as the ascended king reigning at his father's right hand and continuing to intercede for us as our high priest. Jesus is the true fulfillment of Lamech's prophecy. He is the seed of the woman who by his perfect life and sacrificial death has brought us true relief from the curse of sin and law so that our hope and our home is a heavenly Jerusalem where he himself will wipe the tears out of our eyes. He is the true son of God. While these so-called sons of God saw beautiful women and took them for themselves seeking glory and immortality, Christ the only begotten Son of God possessed both glory and immortality of himself and yet in humility laid them aside to take a bride, the church, not because she was lovely, but because he loved her. And by the washing of the water and the word, he has made her lovely and presented her as a spotless bride. And as we will see even more in coming weeks, he is the true and better Noah. Noah received God's favor by grace. But our Lord 
Jesus found approval with God by his own righteousness. And not only that, but by that righteousness imputed to us by faith, he is the one in whom we receive God's favor and every spiritual blessing. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So church, may your hope and your joy be ever in him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Please pray with me. Oh, gracious God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit to help us understand your word. Would you take the feeble attempts of your servant and would you bring fruit in the lives of your people as you work through them? We are indebted to you for all things. But we love you because you have loved us first. And we ask that you would strengthen us in our love and our faith. And bless us as your people. Make us more into the image of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.